0: Information is power. Information helps you decide you're gonna move forward at the right time. It's never too late.
1: Welcome to Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. In this episode, The Power of Two, Rise of the Empowered Patient, We'll hear a personal story of patient empowerment and talk about the implications on outcomes for both patients and professionals. We will also discuss when and how to get patients actively involved in their hearing loss journey and explore what has changed over the last 20 years. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you're a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatment for hearing loss. Hi, Donna. Thanks for joining us on the Hearing Health Today podcast. Before we get started, where are you speaking to us from today?
0: Well, I'm actually in my office for the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, which is also the office in of my home. We're located um, just outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. in McLean, Virginia. So that's that's where we are. We're actually a virtual organization, and we're before COVID. So it was an easy transition uh, for all of us.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. And we do have uh, listeners all around the globe. So for folks who might not be as familiar with the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, could you explain a little bit about what ACIA is and what it does?
0: Sure. We're relatively new organization i was hired as the first executive director and i started in uh, november of 2012. we were started because it was felt that cochlear implantation falls through the cracks and Mm -hmm. although there are a number of organizations in the us that address technology and hearing Mm -hmm. Most of them are quite comprehensive, and hearing aids tend to you know be the be the thing that people most focus on mm-hmm. um and It was felt and we had been some of us have been talking about this for quite a long time that we could help improve awareness um and visibility uh and advocacy for cochlear implants if we had an organization that was Devoted just to CI, mm-hmm. um, so that was that was really the thinking, and the other aspect of it, it's rather unique, is that our our members, uh, our board, everything about us, are from across the care continuum. So okay. we are surgeons, we are audiologists, speech language pathologists educators, psychologists, anyone who was on a a cochlear implant team. Um, And we also incorporate the educational professionals who work with children in various settings. And most recently, we had really emphasized recipients and parents and military members. Um, So um, we're kind of unique. I, I don't think there's another organization quite like us in hearing loss that brings all of that together uh in one place and we all get along which is really nice (laughs) well that's
1: that's good yeah yeah and Donna, you have a personal connection to cochlear implantation and this awareness issue that exists in the industry as well. Is, is that accurate?
0: Yes, that's true. So it actually goes beyond me. My my father had a hearing loss and used hearing aids his entire adult life. His mother also had a hearing loss and used hearing aids. Though honestly, in those days, um, the technology was not great. I was diagnosed as part of the testing that they used to do in school. And I had, an, I, I like to say, nearly normal hearing as a child. Mm-hmm. And it it stayed that way until in college, It's my hearing loss started to change. And then in my 20s and 30s, it, it changed uh, quite rapidly. It changed okay. um, when I was pregnant with my son. Um, and so... That's, you know, that's kind of my entrance into this. I use technology of all types. And then at some point I transitioned to a cochlear implant.
1: I think it'd be really interesting to hear, you know, your perspective, having lived through this journey of finding the right technology that worked for you, and then sort of how you use that experience in your work with ACIA.
0: I had actually a very wonderful um, audiologist that took care of me and She was very empathetic and very skilled. She fit me with what was, at the time, the most advanced technology. I had been using analog hearing aids, and then the first uh, hearing aids that had any digital component came out, and they were digitally programmable. I was willing to do anything, you know, so she said, let's try these, and so I got them, and... I had such a difficult to fit audiogram I very steep Mm -hmm. sloping audiogram and hearing aids just actually never worked you know all that well for me and so Susan said to me at some point you know we've done everything we can for you and you're still not doing very well Mm -hmm. I want you to just consider whether you might want to get a cochlear implant and she in her clinic didn't do cochlear implants, but she, she suggested that I talk to people. And so she had some former patients that I spoke with and then I started down the path and I went to see an ENT who told me that until I had no hearing left, that I wasn't a candidate for this technology. Was
1: that the actual indication criteria at the time?
0: So the person looked at my audiogram and because I had some low frequency hearing decided that I wasn't deaf enough Mm -hmm. and didn't bother to do the testing, I would have passed. Um, So it was a sort of an awful experience. Um, And then I went to my internist and Mm -hmm. I said, find me someone different to go to Mm -hmm. Um, and so he did the research and he recommended that I go to Johns Hopkins which at the time was the place to go you know in that in that part of the world he gave me the name um, of a cochlear implant surgeon who was John Naparco whom many of us have heard of he passed away in 2016 but he was a fantastic physician and surgeon and So John was my doctor, and he and his team moved me along very, very quickly. I had my first appointment in mid-October 1992. I had my surgery, if you can believe it, um, on December 1st.
1: Wow, that's yeah, that is quite quick.
0: Very fast, and I was activated three weeks later. You know, it, it took time, but I... I had a fairly uh, rapid uh, improvement in my hearing. I could tell right away and they thought, you know, over time it would really improve. So the other thing about my experience with cochlear implants is I've had one surgery that was done in 1992, but I'm on my sixth sound processor. And Mm -hmm. each time I have experienced the power of our improving technology each time, there have been aspects of the technology that have improved for me. So, one surgery, yeah, and 1992, and then all of these um, other improvements that I have experienced and enjoyed, and seen how much um, my life has improved with the technology. So, that's where I'm coming from. That's why. I care so much about this technology.
1: And so what do you guys do at ACIA to help drive advocacy and awareness, um, whether it's among consumers or policymakers or professionals? What are some of the things that you guys are working on to help make an easier pathway for people to hearing loss to find the right appropriate technology?
0: so we work along three components we work on research we work Mm -hmm. on awareness and we work on advocacy and the three are very closely linked because you need that research to drive the awareness and to help with the advocacy. So mm-hmm. we work along those those three areas. So for example, right now, we have commissioned a study that would look at the cost effectiveness of cochlear mm-hmm. implants in children. Okay. And the last time that research was done, it was published in 2000.
1: And are you anticipating one or more of those things to have changed more significantly since 2000? Or just need to wait and see what the research says?
0: I think it's probably going to be the case um, that the savings is even greater Um, because at the time those studies were done, we weren't implanting children until they were three years Mm -hmm. old. You know, that was a, that was an early CI. And so the outcomes were not what they are today. Our kids today who are implanted early, um, and have appropriate supports um, very very often are um, comparable to their typically hearing peers by the time they enter first grade and so you're you're gonna see lowered cost in terms of those supports you're going to see improved outcomes you're going to see children who are becoming physicians, attorneys, whatever they want to do in life, musicians, you know, there mm-hmm. there's no limits to what we see our kids doing. And so I, I think we'll see those figures likely will show even more cost savings to society as a, a consequence of, of providing this extraordinary technology at the right time to a child when they need it. And so this is looking primarily at children who are born deaf, um, but the fact is that children become deafened actually sometimes later. You know, and a lot of our kids lose their hearing later because of disease, because of genetic causes that come in later, because of a range of different factors. This is not to say that parents and families shouldn't be able to choose what Mm -hmm. option they want they want for their child. Of course, they should have their own yeah. right to choose. Um, But what we're talking about is ensuring um, that as we make decisions about things, that policymakers know they should be supporting this. Right. There's a cost reason associated with providing the right support for children and for the technology.
1: And you mentioned, so at ACIA, you're doing research that drives awareness and then drives advocacy. So once this research is available, How do you see this affecting awareness and advocacy?
0: We're one country made up of a number of states. There are cultural differences, you know, in terms of how people approach hearing loss, um, depending upon the area, the country. I think when we come together as an organization, when our clinicians come together, um, they are able to talk to each other about, um, you know, how they've overcome some of these challenges. And we now have a formal group that's uh, been in place for a number of years now, our state champion program.
1: Tell me about that. What is the state champion program?
0: I'm going to tell you how, why we started it. We were concerned when insurances started to be offered on state exchanges that they cover cochlear implants. We looked at this and thought, how are we ever going to do this in 50 states? Mm -hmm. Um, So I came up with this idea of starting a program called the State Champion Program, and that we would have um, state champions from across the U.S., and they would be organized by state. And we would provide support for them, and we would provide training and materials Mm -hmm. to help them know how to work on state advocacy, to work Mm -hmm. on... Mm -hmm. Um, all of these uh, state-level issues because, you know, we have policy at the national level, but so much that's of importance to us happens at the state level. Um, So we really needed someone to manage this. And so we have actually quite a robust program now. We have a number of issues that Um, We're looking at at the state level. A lot of times this state level activity drives what we try to do at the national level. Sure. Um, So we get information from our state champions. We now have 140 state champions or more um, that cover, I think, 42 states. We have some states that aren't covered. Um, so that's a, that's a really um, important and, and honestly somewhat unique aspect um, mm-hmm. of what we do at AC Alliance that really engages and involves our members um, in our work, our advocacy work. Um, and most of them have never done this before. So what you're really doing is providing them with training and support, Mm -hmm. once they get the hang of it, they're actually really good at it.
1: Yeah. So maybe to shift gears a little bit from like a patient engagement perspective. So if there are people who themselves have hearing loss, who maybe have received the right intervention or maybe haven't, how can patients get involved or their families get involved in the process of, of advocating for the right level of treatment or the right level of coverage with different organizations?
0: That's really um, what we've been more heavily working on recently. You know, I I think probably the first four or five years of the organization, I really focused on the professional side. And those patients um, can get involved both to help themselves, to have a, Mm -hmm. a better sense of how to move along their hearing loss journey, and they can also get involved in our advocacy. And so recently we started a new program, which we call ci which stands for Cochlear Implant uh, Consumer Advocacy Network, and it's about half parents and half recipients, adult recipients. Yep. Um, and we, um, we really want them to be involved, to share their stories, and to talk to Other recipients to be part of our advocacy efforts so for example if we're setting up a meeting with legislators in a particular state and we want and it's a say let's just say it's a pediatric issue much more helpful to have a parent there who's talking about the benefits to to their child there's that aspect and we we did some training um, through a workshop last year that was uh, after the conclusion of our virtual conference. And it was for um, consumers and parents. And we tried to provide them with a level of information that they couldn't get anywhere else. So for example, we had an audiologist that was talking about the audiogram and when someone would be a candidate. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the people who came on were a mix of people who were looking at CI and people who already had CI. And the people who were there who already had cochlear implants thought it was great because they felt like they were better educated and better able now to talk to people that they. That they met in their local organizations for hearing loss. And I had people who actually wrote to me and told me that they felt that they were much better able to help other people. And that's part of it, it's giving back. I think people feel more empowered if they feel like they're helping others, you know, if they feel like they know enough to be able to talk about the intervention with others. That's part of what we're doing. The other thing that's really important um, is just information, you know, and providing people um, with information. So when I started on this journey almost 30 years ago, there was no Internet.
1: Yeah. Tell me about that. So how could you be an empowered patient sort of with limited access to information about uh, different interventions like cochlear implants 30 years ago?
0: It was so hard, you know, yeah. and, and, I, and I remember going into libraries looking for books on hearing loss. And one time I did that and I found this sort of new book. I mean, maybe it was three years old and it was written by someone talking about FM systems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'd never heard about it, of an FM system before. And so I went to my audiologist and I said, hey, do you think this FM system might help me? And she said, well, they're mostly used by children in classrooms, but you could try one. You could go here and try one out. So that's how you found information.
1: I'm kind of struck by that, Donna, just because that's such a huge hurdle for a lot of patients to have to jump over, to like go to the library, look through the books, read the book, find the right book, take the reference back to their clinician. That's such a barrier... How are we better able to empower patients and what barriers still exist?
0: That's what we're all about. That's what the website is about. When we started this organization, um, we wanted the website to be a national or even international resource Mm -hmm. on cochlear implants um, for patients, for family members for primary care physicians, yeah. for hearing health care professionals who are outside of CI. And, and the website is designed, honestly, more for that population than it is for our own members. You know, our own yeah. members are typically going to use peer-reviewed journals, you know, and we have that information on there and we have information from the conference. But what we think about, what keeps me up at night is what we can do on the website to make it really accessible information to people Mm -hmm. generally. Um, And so we have all that information that I wished I had had you know, yeah, yeah. years ago, that leads someone through the process of cochlear implants. That provides Q and A. You know, like how do, mm-hmm. know how do I know if I'm in good Canada? How do I know if I'm going to gain more than I'm going to lose? What's the surgery about? We know that surgery is often a concern to people. We hear that all the time.
1: And how does this level of information, or how does like patient engagement in the process, affect outcomes?
0: It affects outcomes because information is power. Information helps you decide you're going to move forward at the right time. And we know that people are going to do better if they move forward as soon after they've been identified as having the right hearing configuration, the right hearing profile. I mean, it's never the case. It's never too late. I interviewed, um, Um, the Incredible Hulk last week. And Mm -hmm. we we talked about his uh, cochlear implant journey and the fact that probably he could have done this a long time ago, but it's not too
1: late. Why did he say that he didn't do it sooner? Was it a personal hesitation or was it awareness that he might be a candidate? In his case,
0: he knew someone that had gotten one recently who had done really Mm -hmm. well with it. And so that helped him begin to think seriously about it he was concerned and i hear this all the time that he would lose more than he would gain Mm -hmm. that's often a concern that adults have
1: some of the technology that might help you prior to receiving a ci has gotten a little bit better so maybe i'm wondering if it's a little bit easier to think i'm not sure if i'll gain much from this because now i have live captioning on my phone as an example
0: you're right. There is that concern also just about surgery. You know, mm-hmm. so it's the combination of um the the concern about surgery, the concern will will I gain more than I'm gonna lose, and and an audiologist can can look at someone and test them and tell them with a fair amount of definition, you know, that, that they will gain or they're going to they're gonna lose. And I think the other thing that I have seen recently that concerns me um, is there's been a lot of discussion recently about hair cell regeneration and drug therapies um, that are going to be available. And, and people are saying, hmm, I'm going to wait for that. And I think we all have a responsibility for communicating with the patient community about where we are with those yeah. therapies. It's a very exciting time frame because um, there is the possibility that that will offer um, a, a treatment for people.
1: How can people who have hearing loss and have been on the other side of that journey? How can they better contribute to? Awareness and patient empowerment for people that are entering into the funnel.
0: I think some internet provided sources are superlative, and I have two mm-hmm. favorite ones besides our own, of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, yes. There are two moderated Facebook pages that I really like. One is called Cochlear Implant Experiences. Okay. And one one is called Parents of Children with Cochlear Implants. Um, And they're really large. Like the CI Experiences one is over 30,000 members, you know, and they're mostly from the U.S., but they're also from around the world. And the moderators are fantastic. They are all over what people put out there. Um, and they ensure that the commentary is supportive they ensure that misinformation is not placed um, Mm -hmm. on that site Um, and it's just a very welcoming supportive environment you have to apply to get in and then Mm -hmm. they they look at what's going on I post up there all the time people ask questions and I'll post things um, in terms of the answers parents of children with cochlear implants that one I think is um, not quite as large as the CI experience is one, but it's big too. Um, also, um, moderated by excellent, knowledgeable people. Um, that mm-hmm. one's moderated by two parents who have uh, grown children with cochlear implants. One of them is on our board of directors, and she's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. And she's been involved. So, that kind of information is out there for, for parents and for recipients if they know to go look for it. With hearing health, it's crucial because you, you're not going to be successful with whatever kind of technology you're using if you don't take charge of it. Um, years ago, I used to teach a course for, um, for parents, mm-hmm. um, and I had this little saying that I would put up that I wanted parents to emphasize with their children, and it is, I am the boss of my hearing loss.
1: Oh, I like that. That's a good one.
0: And it applies to adults as well. You know, it's really taking charge and doing whatever is the right thing to do, whether it's therapy, whether it's using technology, whether it's asking questions, whether it's being skeptical. Um, You know, you are the one that has to take charge and you have to figure out what's best for you at this point in time. I also think there's an important family component. I was lucky that I had an extraordinarily supportive family for my my little son, who at the time was eight years old and wanted to do whatever he could do to help mommy get the best Mm -hmm. um, outcome from this um, technology. From learning what a sound was that I didn't... couldn't identify a lot of sounds that had been so long since I had heard them. Um, and he thought it was really terrific to be able to tell me what those different sounds were, whether it was a church bell or the the sound that your car makes when you leave the key and the ignition and you open yeah. the door, you know, all this kind of stuff. So um, that was great fun for him. And I I, I think my entire family was extraordinarily um, supportive during that journey. So I think we, we really have to emphasize the family component, whether we're talking about a child or an adult, um, mm-hmm. somehow people need to have that support in place. I
1: guess, where do we go from here? It sounds like there is increasingly better and better resources um, available to, to patients about what therapeutic interventions might be appropriate for them. Um, when we're talking about the world of hearing loss, but it still sounds like not everyone would be aware that those exist. Um, Some professionals, you know, whether it's um, a primary care physician or um, a hearing aid audiologist might also not be aware that some of those different assets or uh, pieces of information are available to help drive patient empowerment. How do we get to the other side of this mountain?
0: I think we have to just keep plugging away at it. You know, mm-hmm. I think as as an organization, we really try to get in front of those groups as much as we can. We write for the general publications in the field. We talk about different ways that um, our clinicians can get involved by going to state-level meetings, for example, of pediatricians or state-level meetings of, of audiologists or speech pathologists. And I think at some level, um, because we've been doing this for a long time, um, m- maybe people think, hmm, maybe we don't need to do it anymore. But I think you can't stop. I remember when I was um, first moving along this, this journey, um, m- my clinic um, used to have once a quarter um, on Sunday afternoons, uh, they would have presentations. It was just free, you know, and they had some some um, refreshments and it was for um, both patients and others who wanted more information on CI.
1: And who was presenting, the clinicians or the doctors, audiologists?
0: Yeah, it was put on by them and, and then they would have some patients that would come and speak. I probably did it a half a dozen times or so, you know, I would go and speak at them. I think we have to, we have to keep yeah. doing that. We need to try to get, Um, information out um, however we can the extent to which we can um, have spokespersons like like the Incredible Hulk um, Mm -hmm. to talk about um, cochlear implants and the benefits that he's gotten from it Um, uh, and he's a known entity and I'm I'm hopeful that he will be Um, you know, well-recognized and will help resonate with a lot of different people. Um, So, I mean, I think that that outreach is so important and to the extent to which you can involve recipients um, and family members in that process, um, I think that that can really help.
1: Donna, thank you so much for coming on Hearing Health today. It was a pleasure to speak with you and I learned a tremendous amount about the work that um, is happening across the policy, advocacy, and research world, and all the great work that you're doing at the American Cochlear Implant Alliance. So thank you again.
0: Thank you, Craig. It was really a pleasure to be with you, and I certainly appreciated the opportunity to share what we're doing at ACI Alliance, and I hope the information is, is helpful to your listening audience.
1: As we continue to progress through Season 2, we've received some amazing feedback from all of our listeners around the world. We want you to share your perspectives with us so we can work towards creating the most engaging and professionally-led series as possible. Please click the link in the episode notes to share your thoughts. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a consumer, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.